0: From ADP, this is better for it. I'm Francesca Ramsey. You may know me from my videos about race and pop culture on YouTube, or maybe you're just a fan of this podcast. I've written for MTV and Comedy Central, and I even wrote a book about my mistakes on my journey to become an activist. On this show, I talk with business leaders about their biggest mistakes and how they've learned from them. In fact, those lessons fuel what they're working for today. Today, my guest is Elena Regan. Elena is the head chef and owner of the Michelin-starred restaurant, Elizabeth, in Chicago. Now, unlike a lot of fancy chefs, she forages for her food. She goes out into the woods and actually picks what goes into her recipes. Her 10-course meals highlight Midwestern ingredients like acorns and sassafras. She grew up thinking about food this way on her family's farm in Indiana.
1: You know, we were always eating fresh, seasonal food and always cooking everything from scratch. As I got older and started to discover who I was, I saw that that farm was a part of me. That's that's who I was. I was that farm.
0: She recently launched a bed-and-breakfast-style cabin in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula called the Milkweed Inn. In her memoir, it's called Burn the Place, Elena describes her personal struggles with addiction and loss, as well as her missteps and successes as a business owner. It's the first food book to be considered for the National Book Award since 1979's Julia Child and More Company. These themes, missteps and successes, passion and business, are woven throughout Elena's career. And to understand all of that, you need to know how Elena began her career. She worked at some of Chicago's best-known eateries, and it was in those restaurants that she realized she wanted her own establishment. But it was an experiment at a local farmer's market that made people take notice.
1: One day I took pierogies. My mom had a really nice noodle recipe, and I had grown a lot of beets, and I thought, uh, what can I do with these? And so I made a beet filling that I put inside the pierogies, and I took those, and we heated them up right on the spot with, you know, a little propane burner and things like that, and people went kind of nuts, and we sold out really, really fast, and then the next week, they put us in the paper, and so I started selling them in a couple stores in Chicago, and then eventually, like, some blog sites had written about them, and then it drew some attention to it. even as far as Chicago Magazine. Sometimes blogs just have the magic of doing that, I guess, you know, just like podcasts these days. <laughs> <laughs> so by then you had built a name for yourself. How do you expand on that? What was the next step for you? I had heard somebody mention um, underground restaurant, and so I became curious and started searching that online and what that meant and I saw that people were having restaurants in their house or in kind of secret locations and I thought well what if I just do this because people were beginning to think I wanted to have a pierogi company and that was not it. So shortly after that you started
0: your own underground restaurant where you cooked for 10 people in your apartment and served a set menu. Can you describe one of these home dishes for us?
1: Let's see. Um, one thing that I would serve is a mushroom tea broth made from fall mushrooms that we serve in like a little teeny teacup. Another was a pierogi that was filled with potato and black truffles served with a housemade sour cream. Wow,
0: that sounds amazing. I can
1: almost taste them. <laughs>
0: This underground venture was the perfect way to highlight her cooking and business skills. Her plan to start a traditional restaurant seemed possible now. So she called up her previous boss and mentor, the owner of the high-end Chicago restaurants Trio and Alinea.
1: He said, don't open a restaurant. Just keep doing what you're doing in your house. Because when it's a passion project, it's never going to be successful. And he said, you know, just make sure you end up working with people that realize that. If you're going to get investors, make sure they know that this is because this is a passion and not for the money.
0: In fact, those passionate investors were waiting in the wings. They had enjoyed Elena's food when she was hosting those dinners in her apartment, and they jumped at the chance to back Elena's restaurant. She named it Elizabeth. It was a big success, and she got the ultimate award, a Michelin star. Proof that passion can lead the way. So you've won your first Michelin star for Elizabeth. You're running this now very successful restaurant. What's the day-to-day like for you?
1: Um, I mean, it's not glamorous as a lot of people think chef jobs are. I mean, I've been in the dishwasher at Elizabeth's more over the past seven and a half years than we ever had a dishwasher employed. You have to change your hat throughout the day maybe 10 different times from dealing with an employee who has a question about their insurance to making sure that they're making their puree smooth enough to calling the landlord because the lock on the back door is broken and there's just like you know constant constant stuff so you're juggling a ton of things at elizabeth but then in the
0: midst of all that success and all those hats that you had to wear, you made the decision to open a bakery. Why did you do that?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, when we frame it that way, the only answer I have is purely mental illness.
0: Joking aside, she didn't lose her mind, but she did lose a business. After the break, we'll hear about Elena's next passion and business venture, the Bakery Bunny.
1: Better For It is a podcast from ADP. ADP believes that the things we work for are what define us. And they're imagining a world where nothing gets in the way of doing great work. Not even our biggest mistakes. Much more than payroll, ADP also provides best-in-class HR, talent, time, and benefits. All designed to clear the way for you and your people to achieve what you're working for.
0: my conversation with Elena Regan. When we left off, Elena was busy running her highly successful restaurant, Elizabeth, but she
1: decided to launch a second business, a bakery called Bunny. I was doing the thing that I was passionate about and that I was loving, but then you, I think as anyone, begin to think, okay, wait, now that we have a couple Michelin stars under our belt and you know, semi-finalist nominations for James Beard, like the name recognition is out there. So um, how do we expand on that?
0: Right, but so you don't decide to open another restaurant like other chefs usually do. You decide to open a bakery. Why a bakery?
1: Well, because um, at Elizabeth, we had been creating sourdough breads and working on all kinds of different pastries and um, I had fallen in love with baking really and people would come to Elizabeth and they would say oh my god this bread is so good or this brioche is so good or this donut whatever 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 Um, and so we wanted to be able to offer that to people you know I guess the passion part of it right like made complete sense
0: so you have this passion, you're seeing an opportunity with the baking that you're doing to specialize and focus on this one area. How did it go once you opened Bunny?
1: When we opened, we, we were fairly uh, popular, but it, it takes a business uh, time to be able to work out their numbers. And unfortunately, we didn't have the capital initially to do that because we were undercapitalized. So we had to be profitable right away in order to make that work, um, which is not a normal expectation of the first several months of a business. But it needed to be for Bunny. At this point,
0: Elena not only found herself in a race against time, but now she was in charge of two crews, one at Elizabeth and one at Bunny.
1: It was hard for me to manage the amount of staff and everything that we had to produce. You know, what my day looked like was I would get up at 3 or 3.30 in the morning, go to Bunny, get it opened, the staff would start coming in, and then about like 11 or 12, I would leave, I'd go home and sleep for a couple hours and then go to Elizabeth at like 6 or 7.00 and then work till about 10, and then go home, and then sleep till 3. It's like, this is my life as a chef. Like, go, 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 until you can't anymore. But that business deteriorated, like, just financially. We didn't have time to work out the kinks.
0: Elena would look at the books every morning, and the numbers weren't good. She had to use Elizabeth's money to pay Bunny's bills. Her mistakes? Not getting the right initial capital investment overextending herself, and ignoring the bottom line. How often were you thinking about closing leading up to that final decision?
1: Well, from the moment I opened it, or (laughs) from the moment before I, I opened it, you know, there was definitely a lot of signs.
0: How did you keep yourself going when you're constantly thinking about the possibility of this not working out?
1: Um, Because my hope for it to work out was greater than my worry of the possibility of it not working out.
0: And what made you close? What was the trigger?
1: It was a couple days before I actually pulled the plug on it. I had already contributed probably like $80,000 from Elizabeth. You know, it was just like, this is going to get so bad if I don't shut it down. How did you feel? Um, it definitely sucked. I mean, I was very much in love with the concept of the bakery and also the space that we had it in. Like it was it was very cool, interesting, and unique. I didn't feel like um, ashamed or that it had fractured my ego because at that point, it was really a necessity in order to save Elizabeth, in order to save myself from too much heartache or financial burden. Bunny was only open for four months.
0: After it closed, Elena went back to Basics, opening another restaurant, not a bakery, called Kitsune that showcased Japanese-inspired cuisine. Kitsune got great reviews. In 2018, it was named a Best New Restaurant by GQ, Esquire, and Chicago Magazine. And two years into that business, Bunny got a second act. So you eventually reopened Bunny, and it was open for a short time by comparison, only a month. hmm Can you tell me why
1: you made the decision to reopen? The goal was that if we could even make half of what we made at the regular Bunny in a week— That would be the number that we need to make sure that we're able to eventually work ourselves out of the debt that we were in. But it just declined rapidly, and we'd sell about $200 a day. So we tried it for a month, just holding on and holding on and hoping that there would be, like, that week where everybody just started coming in, but they didn't. And so eventually, like, we just had to close everything down. So when you made the decision to close again, how did you feel? Good? <laughs> at that point. At that point, um, you know, after having uh closed the the previous bunny, dealing with the undercapitalization and the stress from that, and then doing the same thing over again, trying to make the business work, putting Elizabeth thousands of dollars in debt with no way to recover that. By the end of all that, I was like, Fucking good riddance. I think one of the things that constantly haunts me is that no matter what, it was still passion projects. I have trouble separating profitability from quality. I only saw where we would either have to cut production or cut the quality of ingredients or, you know, make sacrifices to actually change the numbers. With the closing of
0: Bunny and Kitsune, Elena was left running her first restaurant, but she knew she had to reassess, and she did that by listening to herself.
1: At some point, I looked at my career and thought, am I going to be wanting to run Elizabeth in 20 years from now, you know, at this capacity, managing 20-year-olds, I'm going to continue to get older and they're going to continue to stay 22 through 27 because of like, that's the nature of the industry. And, you know, I do love teaching them, but also all of this comes at a cost. And, you know, I'm still going to Elizabeth and scrubbing floors with them at night. And, you know, at a certain point, it's like, when do I want to try to have like a different lifestyle I had for a while been dreaming about moving to the upper peninsula of Michigan in a cabin to turn it into like a kind of an eccentric bed and breakfast to be out in the woods foraging and gardening. And so almost like going back to my underground supper club because it's just 10 people at a time in this enclosed little environment.
0: This dream of hers became the Milkweed Inn a bed-and-breakfast-style retreat deep in the woods where you sleep in a cabin, a tent, or a trailer and dine on freshly foraged food. Is it true that your entire first season at the inn sold out in two days after you opened? Um, I mean, it was just five weekends, but yeah, it sold out very quickly. You cannot minimize just five weekends (laughs) because that's still a huge accomplishment. So how did you come up with the name Milkweed Inn?
1: Um... That is because when people ask me about foraging in the Midwest, I talk about milkweed, which is such a great plant. What does it taste like? Uh, It tastes like this really great combination of spring peas and asparagus. It's just lovely.
0: What else have you been foraging up there?
1: We foraged strawberries and blueberries and blackberries and raspberries and dewberries. I don't know if I already said the cranberries, but... um, also oyster mushrooms and chanterelle mushrooms and lobster mushrooms and young pine cones. When I think of a pine cone,
0: I just think of all of the little points on it that are prickly and would be painful.
1: Uh, no, there's some young pine cones that are really soft and I candied them in a little bit of syrup and sugar. And... Um, then preserved them that way. And they just were were nice and soft and had this little bit of pine essence.
0: So you're foraging all of these berries and mushrooms and pine cones by yourself?
1: Uh, Well, my wife helps me. But yeah, we we do it um, by ourselves. But again, when we're only feeding 10 people a weekend, it's not like I have to collect hundreds of pounds of these things. It gives us that sustainability structure too, which makes things feel a little bit more natural and and more real. And I like that.
0: You talked so much about your passion for food, but also how hard the business part of it is and how hard it is to shoulder all of these responsibilities and wear all of these hats. Do you feel like you've figured out how to balance the creative part and the business part?
1: Well, Right now, I have somebody who's working in the office for me at Elizabeth. And so that is helping me just focus on a lot of the kitchen and a lot of the creative parts of the restaurant, which makes me fall back in love with my restaurant in a way that I hadn't been feeling for a while.
0: So it sounds like one of the things that you've learned through all of these different business ventures is how to delegate. Yeah. Why do you think that took you so long to figure out?
1: Well, because a lot of it had to do with living up to my expectations and that probably control freak nature that I had. But opening the other restaurants had given me that opportunity to relinquish control, which helped me become eventually a better business person because being a successful entrepreneur is being able to delegate. Something
0: I really appreciate about your story is you've accomplished so much. You are transparent about the mistakes and the failures that you may have had along the way, but you've also used them to really hone your process and do something special that really feels unique to you and your passion. Given all of these experiences, if you could go back in time and tell yourself something, give yourself a piece of advice, what would you say?
1: I've been asked this quite a bit. Um, And usually, I say, don't open a restaurant. (laughs) But then, uh, you know, the thing is, is that even if I was able to go back in time, I know that that younger self would look at my older self who says, don't open a restaurant and still open a restaurant. Because that's how badly I wanted to do that. But obviously, I'm so happy that I've done all of it because... Not only has a lot of it been rewarding and fulfilling, I've also learned a lot from the mistakes that I've made along the way. Me leaving this industry altogether or stopping cooking or, you know, not being in hospitality doesn't seem to be a question. I'll, I'll always be doing all of that. Elena realized that you can
0: pursue a passion as long as you delegate, don't do it alone, and stay true to your core creative values. These days, she's focused on running Elizabeth and the Milkweed Inn and writing another book. And she told us that what she's working for now is balance. Next time, I chat with Brian Scudamore, CEO and co-founder of one 800 got Drunk. He talks about how he discovered, five years into running his own business, that he'd hired the wrong team. I had 11 people. We had a private office, and I would go hide in that private office just to separate myself
1: from these people.
0: That's next time on Better For It. Better For It is a podcast from ADP. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review and share the show with your friends. You can tweet me at Chescaleigh. There's a link in the show notes. Better For It is produced by Max Gibson and Matilde Orfelino. Andrea Bruce is our editor. Mixed and scored by Molly Bolton. Our theme is composed by Marcus Thorne Bagala. Additional music from Marmoset and Billy Libby. Fact-Checking by Gabby Bulgarelli. I'm Francesca Ramsey. Thanks for listening.